You're listening to WERALP, Arlington, Virginia, 96.7 FM, streaming and on demand at WERA.FM. Coming to you from the studios at Arlington Independent Media, I'm your host, Lynn Porton, and this is Choose to be Curious. Welcome. Imagine yourself in a tropical forest. It's lush and warm and full of life. The cacophony of birdsong is considerable, and the drip of a nearby waterfall hypnotic. No need to imagine. You're with me at Amazonia at the National Zoo in Washington, D.C. We're here because when I was a guest speaker for a philosophy class at American University, a student piqued my curiosity. This is a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life and animals. So, Nick, we came to the zoo because you asked a question about animal curiosity. I'm curious what inspired the question. Well, um, not to be generic, but it was actually my dog. But there's just, because it's such a weird dog that um, <laughs> it has these like odd behaviors that I've noticed throughout the years that have always just been kind of just like why, what motivates it, you know, it's not... Because before I got my dog, I, I like met so many dogs, like I knew what to expect. But there's, like I said, there's these certain kind of patterns that he does, and I just thinking like, is is my dog really like looking for some sort of a, a something like beyond just food and water and sex and shelter? Like, is there is it curious about anything else? When I when it was a puppy and I would bring it to the park and like these other dog owners would talk to me about like the personality of their dogs and they'd go on and on. I just think like, come on, it's, it's just a dog. But what I realized is that it, they really are, they have these like kind of, each of them have like these odd little habits that I assume are based off of curiosity. And what I think is difficult to understand is we kind of make curiosity a human thing. You know, every conversation about it is surrounded by human intentions and conditions and experiences. But it's just so weird to think about because if we're also animals, then you might as well apply curiosity to other species. But then where do you draw the line? Because it's easy to say a dog's curious because they have like these kind of eccentric personalities. But then how far do you go in terms of like frogs or insects and the next thing you know you're talking about atoms from a table you just it's just it's a difficult thing to talk about i don't know where it ends but the questions led to hillary a helpful and very knowledgeable animal keeper at amazonia so animal keepers are passionate individuals that work in zoos and aquariums um, both within the u.s as well as abroad we are frequently specialists of certain taxa of animals. Um, there are people that spend their whole careers with maybe the same six elephants, but on the flip side of the coin, there are people like myself who work in a much more diverse exhibit where we have frogs and fish and birds as well as um, terrestrial insects and a great variety of other animals. So it kind of depends on what department you're working in and where your passion lies as to what you're doing. Here at the National Zoo, we have 
12 different animal departments. And then out at our front royal facility, there's another three departments out there. So we have almost 100 keepers between the two institutions, um, many of which do activities for their animals every day, um, training, enrichment, feed, care, cleaning is a big part of our job, but also things that we wouldn't think of, like lawn maintenance or mm. um, those kinds of things that are involved heavily depending upon the animal that you're working with. And so your uh, particular department and environment is among the most diverse. I mean, there's no place yes. more diverse than the Amazon, right? Yeah, the Amazonia exhibit is found at our Washington DC campus. It exists of a um, rainforest side of the building, which is themed towards the Amazon rainforest. And then we also have a science gallery side where we're able to highlight some of the Smithsonian science that's going on with our um, coral cryogenics, as well as the uh, research that's going on with chytrid fungus that relates to amphibians worldwide. So Amazonia is this great way to really take a lens, for those of us who can't necessarily travel there, to sort of have a, a lens into it and to not just the animals, right? I mean, you also bring in the environment itself, like specially selected Plants, plants, yeah. Right. So our rainforest exhibit has plants from the Amazon. Some of them are actually fruiting trees and plants. Um, we have Brazilian cherry trees, chocolate trees, chiclet trees, which is actually where we um, chewing gum started was with those individuals. But are we, they really called chiclet trees? Yeah. Really? <laughs> That's where the whole name of the gum came See? from, which is pretty cute. Love that. Um, but we also highlight things like orchids and other epiphytes, which are aerial root plants that may not be growing in the Amazon River, but they'll actually attach themselves to the taller trees, because some of those kapoks can get to be 300 meters tall, mm -hmm. and each of them is kind of their own ecosystem where you have plants growing off of the tree trunks or the root system being homes for fish, depending upon the flood or the dry season, as well as everything that we would think of as far as the canopy level with sloths and birds and things living there. So the National Zoo has an enrichment and training committee, and we define enrichment as stimulus that we give the animals to encourage natural behavior. Now some of those behaviors may actually not be active ones. If we have animals like a sloth who sleep a lot, mm -hmm. it's not that we're going to constantly give him things to maneuver to try and keep him as active as possible, but we may, when we're thinking about how we build exhibits, be able to provide perches for him to you know, do that sleeping behavior, but make sure that they're also visible to the public. So it's considering how can we highlight these behaviors that these animals do, encourage them to do those behaviors without detracting from the visitor experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Some of the things that we may use fall into different categories. There's food, which is always a motivator for any of us as we can think of as people, um, but also social um, enrichment. So if we have a bird that is normally part of a flocking group and they're up at the hospital because they're sick or something, what we may do is provide them with mirrors so they don't feel quite so lonely. It decreases the stress hormones that we can see in actual lab data. So we want to make sure that we can decrease that as much as possible. Other things that we may do are called environmental enrichment, which has a lot to do with what are we putting into the exhibit to promote those behaviors. Um, for those of us that keep chickens in our backyards, scratching is a natural behavior. Um, for chickens to do. It's how they hunt. They'll also dust bathe. So we want to make sure that we're providing them with sand or really dry soil while at the same time giving them different textures in um, their yard so that they're not walking on repetitive surfaces, which can cause them foot problems. When we think of a holistic design to exhibits, we want to make sure that those are options as well. So what brought me here was this whole question of animal curiosity. And that enrichment program seems to me to be sort of based on a foundation of capitalizing on whatever level of curiosity there is among species. And I wonder, I mean, is that your experience? Is that actually how it plays out? Does yeah. it vary by species? It varies by species, and it also tends to vary by individual, which is always really interesting to hmm. see. So um, particularly amongst things like elephants, apes, bears, some of our more 
personality-driven individuals. You may see one bear prefer one type of enrichment to another depending on what their motivations are. So the same as you and me, our motivators may be completely different. I am not a huge fan of candy. So for me, if you put a bowl of Jolly Ranchers in here, I really am not going to be motivated by that. Um, but if you gave me a cup of coffee, I would absolutely behave more <laughs> willingly to do something <laughs> in or that manner. For yes, but we're both human beings as a right. species, so there's going to be different things that stimulate us, uh -huh. um, even amongst individuals, where for some of our animals, like our tamanda was at the small mammal house, the things that motivate them are small insects that they can consume. But even among those two individuals, I know that our female is much more exploratory than the male is. So she's more likely to go climbing around. And for animals that live in big social groups, sometimes that f more curious animal showing the rest of the group that this item, this new component is safe and we can go and interact with it, we'll actually get the rest of them utilizing it. Huh. Um, we have two parrots in Amazonia that recently got released. And our male was pretty shy when he was being released from our introduction cage. It actually took him about three days to get to finally fly out of it, even with all the doors open. Where our female was out, within two or three minutes, she just flew into a tree. It's like, okay, cool, I live here now. But there are definitely certain animals that are gonna be more interested in certain items. And that has a lot to do with, are they a predator or are they a prey species as well? So if you're a prey item, you're not gonna necessarily go walk up to the first new novel thing that you see because over the course of generations, you've learned that being more careful, being more held back will actually help further your family line. So when we think of things like rodents per se, those are, it's a pretty good prey animal across the board. There mm -hmm. aren't, most of them get consumed by a lot of stuff. So if you put an item, an enrichment item out in the middle of their exhibit, not near their hides, not near something else, it may take them longer to get to it than if you had presented it in a more, quote, safe way. Mm. So they'll choose to be curious in their own time. Yes. And, and sort of consistent with their 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 Natural their nature. History. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. There are always exceptions to the rule. There's always some individuals that will just be like, oh, okay. But then there are things that we can do to to encourage them to go and explore that item. So we use scents, herbs, spices, extracts that you and I would use. They're all food safe components, but sometimes we may spray a perfume or a body spray or vanilla extract that's been diluted to encourage the animals to go over to that space because sometimes them smelling something different within their own home will make them more likely to go over to that area, particularly with the species that do what we call scent marking behavior. Mm -hmm. And we can compare that to our cats at home. Um, you'll see them rub their cheeks up against things. They may be um, rubbing up on you to get their scent upon you to show that you're part of their group. So sometimes what we'll do is we'll put nutmeg or something onto a log and you'll see that some of our cats will come over and start rubbing up on it. Our wolves in, on American Trail apparently really like certain body sprays like Axe. <laughs> it's not a product placement, they just seem to really like going and rolling in it. So if we're having something where we want them to be curious, sometimes curious can also mean somebody else has been in my house and I need to make sure that everyone knows that this place is mine mm -hmm. and not whatever else happened. So. So, so that raises an interesting question that I was thinking a little bit about in terms of the intersection of curiosity and play, but then fun being functional. Mm -hmm. And I know that some of your enrichment exercises are basically kind of puzzles yes. for the animals. Talk a little bit about that. So it depends on the species. Some of the puzzles we'll do are very, very academic per se, like with our great apes at Think Tank. They have training sessions where they have to um, use screens to match patterns, and that's more what we would consider to be on the human side of the puzzle spectrum and considering those things. That being said, there are other institutions where they've done amazing training behavior. Um, there's one 
where you see pattern recognition with fish, where you show him an item and he has to go match it to another item. We'll do it with our pinnipeds as well. If there's something foreign in the exhibit, they've trained those animals to go and retrieve it and give it back to them for rewards. Other animals, it may be a little bit more simplistic, where the puzzle is a physical item, maybe a ball with holes drilled into it that we can put food items into, where they'll spend more time with that item, moving it around to get all of those food items out. We always have to consider the individual again, so we have some items where depending upon the size, our male panda, there's one toy where he's larger than our female, so he can hold it by both ends and just shake all the food into his mouth, where her, she can't do it, so she's gonna spend more time with it <laughs> just based on what he's been able uh -huh. to figure out. And then there are other items that we may have, they're called weebles, but they can push it back and forth and that provides them with social enrichment as well as physical maneuvers. And then from a health perspective, our animals are in smaller environments than they would find in the wild. We're feeding them pretty high quality food. They don't have predators that they need to be worried about. So what sometimes happens is our animals may run a little bit fat. So by giving them puzzle feeders, we can increase their activity level by maneuvering all of those items from a health component as well. It also keeps them more active because many people come to the zoo and they don't want to see an animal just sleeping in a pile, they want to see it doing something. So it's kind of a multi-tiered function of having one item that curiosity or activity levels are going to help them. So, I mean, the title of the show is Choose to be Curious. Do you think mm -hmm. animals choose to be curious? Oh, there are definitely times when we will ask an animal to work with us as animal trainers and they will refuse a session. Yeah. So there's, there's choice involved and enrichment as well as animal training helps our animals participate in a way that they can choose whether or not they want to be there. A lot of the things that we'll utilize with our enrichment items, it's their diet of what we've weighed out for them to have throughout the day, but it's not all of their diet. We're not going to say you have to work for every piece of food that you're going to get or you have to do one thing or another. So there is a, a matter of choice with it. So, And some of our animals are more social than others. Some of them we need to figure out what the motivating factor may be um, to get them to manipulate certain things. Um, at Amazonia, what we'll do is we'll toss out live crickets into our rainforest. Nobody has to eat them, mm -hmm. but our animals can choose to do some active hunting and if that's coinciding when the visitors are coming through, so it's a little bit more active and loud as dynamic. they run around, it's a little bit more dynamic of an Well, exhibit. and it's also, I mean, for people who have any concern about animals in, a, in captivity, it also allows them to exercise some control over their environment. Yes. Yeah, interesting. So for our apes, they have the choice, our great apes of our orangutans, we have the O-line that's built into the National Zoo. It connects the think tank exhibit to the great apes exhibit. Right. They can actually choose where they want to spend their time, literally through a huge, tall aerial bridge. So they can say, oh, I don't want to be at Ape House right now. I would like to go to Think Tank because that's where more of the training sessions happen. Some, sometimes the choice is dependent upon whether or not there's offspring. So I know that when we had baby Red, mom was choosing not to use the O-line because she didn't want to take him up too soon. But then she took him up one day and we all were like, we're just going to hope that you know what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting you mentioned Red because I saw somewhere something that was characterizing, his mom's name was Batang, is that her Batang. name? Batang. Batang, okay. That she seems to be raising him to be curious. That it was the zookeeper's impression that that was like, there was some intentional parenting going on around curiosity there. Does that ring true to you? I would imagine that it would be true. The apes are very much like us when it comes to um, certain characteristics. So the same way that we might have free range parents among uh -huh. human beings as opposed to more of the helicopter parent style, I could definitely see us 
observing similar behaviors of her being a little bit more risk tolerant with him and what he's able to do. Because she could very easily just force him to be with her all the time if she felt like it was a safety concern, but he's comfortable, she's comfortable enough and he seems interested enough in participating in new activities. Well, and she obviously has some risk tolerance if she's taken him up on the high wire. Yes. <laughs> taking him from one place to the other, yeah. We have some very nice high-res Zoom photos of him, just like oh, a little dead. bit overwhelmed as his world just doubles. Nick brought the conversation back to its philosophical origins. Do animals struggle with morality, he wondered? Morality is a tricky thing just because people ourselves haven't decided what is or is not moral behavior and that seems to go culture by culture as well. There are certain truths to my understanding that hold across culture, thou shall not kill, there are certain things mm -hmm. that we won't do. That being said, there are always going to be, um, at least in the animal field, if it's curiosity, I don't know, but some of them are just going to be naturally more destructive with things and they know they're not supposed to be doing it. Like I. I promise you that they know that they're not supposed to do it. Um, whether it's purposefully scaring their keepers just because they like to watch what we do, um, which is definitely something that happens for sure. Um, our cassowary, which is a dangerous Australian bird, they're big birds with giant feet. She would sneak up on you and then kick the wall. You have a fence between you, but she just liked to watch you. Oh my gosh, just watch you do. Just for fun. But other times it may be something where um, they're making a choice, if it's a social group particularly, is it for the betterment of the individual or is it for the betterment of the group? And there may be individuals, as they become sexually mature at the point of natural separation from a family unit, you may be seeing more socially destructive behavior. Um, we had Condola, who was our male elephant, who was born here at the National Zoo, and as he got older, they saw him getting rougher with his, um, his aunts and his mom, which makes sense when you consider the fact that bull elephants typically will leave the matrimonial herd as they go along, sorry, matriarchal herd as they go along. <laughs> so sometimes it is a, a component of age when we start considering that, but I don't, I'm not an expert in any way in primates, and their social structures can be fairly complex. Mm. I don't know if there are certain, quote, taboo behaviors that are are not allowed in those social um, groupings, but they definitely wouldn't be, I don't think it would be fair for us to apply human morality to what animals consider to be appropriate behavior. And would Hillary consider animal curiosity the result of evolution? No, because I think you can, we can compare it to certain species that we've seen be able to adapt to human development of habitats better than others. They're just able to adapt faster. And those are typically the species that are either more curious or more tactile with their surroundings. Um, when we look at something like a raven or a crow, the corvid group as a whole, we've seen through lab testing, through field observations, they're a very intelligent group of animals, but they're also curious. You will see them doing behaviors that they have observed. Um, there's a story, and I don't know the source for it, but they found car tires being flattened um, during a heat wave. And what they found out through recording is that there was one Corvid that was going and unscrewing the um, tire screws and then releasing the air onto itself because it <laughs> connected the dots that there's air in there. Um, other Corvids have figured out that cars drive fast and they're heavy and they crush things. So you'll see them take nuts and drop them in front of moving vehicles and then go after the car is done to eat that food which by Jane Goodall's definition, that's tool use. They're just using a different tool mm. than what we typically consider, but we do see them use things like sticks to probe into holes in the more traditional sense of it. Um, those are all curious behaviors. There was a trial and error that developed with those um, things, so I would say it's not necessarily an evolution. It's a how quickly can you adapt to your environment to make your life either easier or successive generations will take those genes of intelligent or problem solving, um, particularly with highly visual species like 
apes, bears, and birds, there is a certain amount of learned behavior of you are observing your parents or your social mm. um, compatriots doing those behaviors and you'll learn it that way. I don't know how much of a genetic component is on there, which takes away the evolutionary side of things. Right, that makes sense. So, so do you think that like, the more curious animals are better equipped to survive and adapt I do. and so forth? So yeah. then like, based on natural selection, um, would you be able to kind of theorize that animals are therefore like, getting more curious? It's hard for me to say because it's, a, it's an across-the-board thing in all ecosystems. Mm. And there are going to be certain ecosystems where it's not applicable. Um, some of our species, like Japanese spider crabs that live way down in the depths of the ocean, they, don't, they may be learning, we're just not seeing it, but they've adapted to live near the thermal vents to stay warm. So yeah, their curiosity maybe we're going to try to eat new things as it falls down. Not necessarily, I'm going to ride on the submarine that found me. So there's differing degrees of what we consider to be curious behavior as humans and what they would consider to be slightly more risk-taking behaviors as a species. Right. So yeah, I, I was actually like kind of linked risk and curiosity is kind of hand-in-hand. Um, hand. I think they can be linked for sure, but it's n there's only so much that you can do, in my opinion, with a species where it's been, if they're a prey animal, they're not going to take as many risks versus a predator where they have less to fear. There's going to be certain degrees of it that you'll see, and you can't really without successive generations of trying to breed domestication into them, they won't deviate from those certain patterns. They're not going to go and do things that we can train them over the course of many, many sessions to do things that they wouldn't do in the wild. But if you were going to say, I expect this animal to be comfortable sitting on somebody's hand as a wild animal and we haven't trained them and there's, they may be curious enough to come near you, mm -hmm. but near for them may be staying put while you observe them as opposed to a dog that's going to come up onto you. Certainly among, as I was telling people that we were going to have this conversation, all the dog owners that I know were like, well, yeah, of course, <laughs> you know, because my dog is so curious in all of these different ways. But as you say, curiosity is a little bit different than risk-taking, or there's some spectrum mm -hmm. there, right? And a risk tolerance, maybe. Humans are like that, too. I mean, there, there are things that we'll risk exploring and things we won't risk exploring. Well, well I, th I think you're, you wouldn't risk anything unless you're curious about that subject. I'm not saying like you necessarily have to take a risk based on curiosity, but if you are taking a risk, then you're probably curious about whatever you're taking a risk on, or else why would you take that risk? Protection. Defense. That's actually true. Fear. <laughs> yeah, fear is another one, yeah. Mm -hmm. If you have to, for sure. If Sometimes the motivation may not be curiosity. There are certain um, hierarchy of needs that we'll see too at risk of our own demise will injure ourselves for certain things. Lots of animals that have done things where we're like, we can't figure out why they did it that way, but they did, and now we're all going to deal with it. But right, well, <laughs> ascertaining motivation on these things. I mean, it's hard yeah. enough with humans who can be verbal and, and mm -hmm. try to explain their actions. With animals who don't have that capability, you know, sort of understanding intent is at best kind of a guessing game on our part. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so do you have a favorite curiosity story? There are, there's a species of bird, they're called the blue-billed curacao. They're critically endangered, they're only found in Colombia. They're turkey-sized individuals. Um, super cute, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the neat things about them is that the males will present courtship gifts to the females. Um, and that is usually in the wild food items or a particularly nice round rock or something like that, but our male 
was very used to just picking up whatever was in the yard and bringing it to you. So he would bring his female or me because he got used to seeing me in the yard and we were fine. I, sometimes it would be a Tupperware container or the syringe <laughs> container that you dropped out of your pocket. And then you'd have to go like chase Tiny him around enough. and be like, you need to give it back to me. <laughs> because his curiosity was motivated by sex, which is an extremely strong motivator. And we can apply that just across the board in the animal field. <laughs> we talked about risk taking. That's a You see a lot of dumb things done for that. Um, but because he was comfortable enough with us, we had that trust. Sometimes the curiosity would override common sense in those situations. So you'd be like, that's a screw and you need to bring that back to me. And I don't know how that came out, but you need to bring it here. <laughs> so that's kind of where I would think of curiosity of what items that they wouldn't normally encounter mm -hmm. did they pick up. Kaylee, one of our elephant keepers made, we call it a popcorn cannon. Um, it's really just big PVC that they put some popcorn in the elephants blow out the bottom and it scatters the popcorn all over the exhibit. Oh my goodness. Which was really cool and it works. <laughs> but then she figured out that the elephants were getting more out of just blowing into it and making weird noises <laughs> instead of going and eating they didn't the, popcorn. Care about the popcorn. They, they didn't care as much about the uh -huh. popcorn. Now whether or not she, she had changed that out for something like mini marshmallows, would yeah. that have been a bigger motivator? But I think any parents that listen to your show are probably going to be pretty familiar of the story of like, we built them this thing and all they want to play in is the box. Yeah, right. And she's like, why? Why are we just yelling into a tube if that's what we <laughs> want to spend our time doing? <laughs> so sometimes we can have all of the best intentions of how great we think something's going to be and they're still just like... You know, there's a, there's a whole theory of a kind of a, a dimension of curiosity that's specifically um, joyous exploration. Yeah. That sounds like joyous exploration to I me. I think so. Um, there's definitely certain things, certain seasons where you'll see more of that behavior, particularly um, when you see parents rearing offspring um, in the mammal field, you'll see more wrestling, more tumbling. Uh -huh. The parents doing things that we would consider to be very silly, but if you consider it from a standpoint of the cubs need to hunt, they're gonna practice on dad. Uh, Jen has some great photos of our lion dad, Luke, who's just making the most agonized face because one of his kids is like pulling on his tail or something because he has to teach him how to pretend to, to hunt and do those natural behaviors. And any parent anywhere would identify with Yes! <laughs> I really owe Nick a debt of thanks. His deceptively simple single question not only opened up a fascinating topic of exploration, but he pushed the conversation into intriguing corners I didn't anticipate. As is so often the case, curiosity begets curiosity. You've been listening to WERA 96.7 FM. If you joined us late or want to catch up with this or any of the other great shows here on the station, check us out online and on demand at WERA.FM. You can find all my previous shows on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, SoundCloud, and Facebook, all at Choose to be Curious, or on my website at ChooseToBeCurious.com. I hope you follow me there and on Twitter at Choose Number 2, Letter B, Curious. Thanks to the National Zoo and Hillary, Amazonia Animal Keeper par excellence, to Nick for posing the question and coming along for the ride, to Antonio Villaranga for sound recording and general encouragement, to Sean Ballack for our theme music, and Blue Dot Sessions for Trivial Call by the Bayou Birds. I hope you'll join us again next time, and until then, choose to be curious.
Funding for Choose to be Curious on WERA 96.7 FM is provided in part by the Center for Parents and Teens, where families are strengthened through a connection built through positive communication, mutual understanding, and realistic expectations of one another. For more information, visit www.centerforparentsandteens.com. Choose to be Curious is sponsored in part by realtor Christine Hopkins. Curious about real estate? Christine works with clients from around the world using her time and knowledge to build community. As she likes to say, community engagement has always been my big why. Working in real estate has helped me express that. What makes you part of a community more than living there? For more information, visit facebook.com slash Nova House Hunter.